0: This is the ACR 22 Daily Podcast Review, featuring the Room Now faculty as they present to you their favorite abstracts and
1: presentations from the meeting. Enjoy.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm here at Room Now, live at ACR 2022 here in Philadelphia. And I'm at Janet Burdow is my Twitter handle. I'm enjoying the meeting and I wanted to talk about get the skinny on BIMI. So BIMI Kuzanab, and I probably am not saying it exactly right, so I'm gonna fondly call it BIMI, was presented by Chris Richland at a late-breaking abstract, abstract L02. And it is a selective IL-17 inhibitor, IL-17A, like the other ones that we're used to in rheumatology, but also F. And this was a a randomized trial of a large amount of people, active psoriatic arthritis, bio-naive, and they were randomized to either BIMI or to adalimumab or to placebo. And the bottom line is it was highly effective, very effective on skin and really great on joints as well. But I have two questions about it. The first question is, where does it fit in compared to the other IL-17 inhibitors? And I guess the next question is, what is an IL-17F anyway? What, what is that adding value for um, uh, from benefit or changes in safety? So there was a little bit of Canada, nothing uh, disseminated. So it looked like the other IL-17s in my mind. But I think we want to get
1: more skinny on BIMI over time. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope here at Room
0: Now. I'm at the ACR 2022 Convergence live from Philadelphia. I wanted to talk about breaking bones and low dose glucocorticoids in our patients with rheumatic diseases. So this was a late breaker, a late breaking L01, and this was a study of multiple patients with rheumatic diseases on glucocorticoids or not, and it actually found things that we already know, such as Uh, Glucocorticoid-induced steroids, higher dose, more risk of fracture. We already know that, but it was a late breaker because there's some innuendos here that are really important. So the first thing that's important is even at 2.5 milligrams a day, there was more bone loss and there was an increased risk of fractures. The next thing is, it wasn't just where you got on your bone density, it was the change from your baseline. And that makes sense. If you're losing more bone mass, you're going to have more potential fractures. And the take home could be um, basically interpreted one of two ways. One way you could say the take-home is any dose of glucocorticoids isn't great. Follow the BMD and treat them accordingly because treatment uh, with bisphosphonates or denosumab, etc. could help reverse the findings, of course, because steroid-induced osteoporosis is treatable often. But the other take-home could be that there's an interaction of rheumatic diseases that are chronic and inflammatory and in and of themselves can um, increase the predilection for low bone density. So that 2.5 milligrams of prednisone in a chronic rheumatic disease patient maybe is equivalent in the general population to five or 7.5 milligrams because they have this added risk. I'm speculating, but that did come up in the questions as well. So I think it's giving me a new uh, respect for looking at the bone density in my patients, even on low dose glucocorticoids. Enjoy the rest of the meeting, thanks.
1: Hello everyone,
2: this is Leanne Gensler from UCSF in San Francisco, reporting for Room Now on day three of the conference. And today I wanted to focus on what I think is a very important study that may not have gotten a lot of visibility at the meeting because it was um, a Ignite talk um, that, that happened at the end of the day on day three. So the, and I fully, full disclosure, I'm involved in the study, both for design interpretation of the results and uh, recruitment of patients. But nevertheless, I think it probably is one of the most important studies that will come out this year um, in this axial spondylarthritis space. And this is abstract number uh, L15. So this was a late breaker. And there's a couple of reasons why I think this abstract is important for us to talk about. One is um, it's a late breaker, which means it's new data and it has not been presented anywhere else. Two is, this is the first head-to-head trial in the axial spondylarthritis space. And three is, the primary endpoint was looking at radiographic progression. So the title of this abstract is the effect of secukinumab versus adalimumab biosimilar on radiographic progression in patients with radiographic axial spondylarthritis or ankylosing spondylitis. And this is a phase 3b study. And it was presented by Xenophon Baraleakos. And the um, approach to the study was to randomize patients with radiographic disease to three different arms, two different doses of secakinumab. So this was a study sponsored by Novartis, 150 and 300 milligrams or an adalimumab biosimilar. And to follow these patients in a head-to-head fashion for superiority over a two-year period. these patients were selected for high risk of progression. And so that's another important point here is that this was an enriched study that included patients that either had to have an elevated C-reactive protein and radiographic disease or radiographic disease and a syndesmophyte on their spinal imaging at baseline. So so really these are gonna be patients that are at, at high risk for progression. And so the primary endpoint in the study was actually looking at the proportion of patients that had no radiographic progression over the two-year period uh, based on the, the MSAS, the Modified Stoke Ankylosing Spondylitis Spinal Score, uh, less than point or equal to 0.5. So this is basically no change in that damage. And then they had some secondary endpoints, including the development of new and desmophytes. So... Um, This this study is important because it brings up the question of whether one mechanism of action, i.e. an IL-17 inhibitor here, may be better than a TNF inhibitor for radiographic progression. And so they enrolled almost 900 patients, 859 patients, to these three arms, one-to-one-to-one, and they followed them up then over two years. Most of these patients were men, and that's not surprising because we know men have more inflammation and damage to begin with. They had an average MSAS of 16.6, which is quite a lot of damage to begin with. They had an average high-sensitive C-reactive protein of 20 milligrams per liter, and 73% of them had at least one syndesmophyte uh, at baseline. And so the results of the study showed that at 104 weeks, which is two years of follow-up, most of the patients did not have radiographic progression. This is very reassuring to us. And that included almost identically 66% of the secakinumab or 67% and 66% of the adalimumab arm. So there was no difference, no superiority. And in, in fact, these look very similar in their radiographic outcomes. Uh, Similarly, when they looked at the mean change in the MSAS, uh, it was around 0.5 to 0.7, depending on the arm that was evaluated, so very low radiographic progression over two years, Um, and this is reassuring to us. So I think my take-homes from the study are that despite the fact that there is no superiority of one mechanism of action over another, this is an enriched population that should progress in a two-year period, and these patients... Most of them did not progress, and I think that's very reassuring. It tells us that when we we suppress inflammation, we probably do have benefit, despite the fact we have no randomized control trial data with placebo to show that, and we will never have that because it would not be ethical to follow patients over a two-year period with no treatment. So in conclusion, I think this is uh, very reassuring to us that patients with high risk of progression when treated with a biologic, regardless of the mechanism, do well, and most of these patients do not progress this is leanne gensler reporting for room now on day three of acr convergence
1: 2022 hello everyone thank you for joining us today in this uh, edition of uh, room now um, I'm here at the ACR uh, 2022 meeting after two long years of uh, hiatus. Uh, happy to be uh, mingling with all our colleagues and also being immersed in all this wealth of knowledge that we've always craved to have in a, in a live version from, from ACR. Uh, I, I have to thank room now to give me the opportunity to give you today an uh, important message that I, I, uh, I think I can share with many of you. And that is... Uh, Uh, my experience and the importance of clinical trials at the uh, practice level. Uh, We can um, really attest to this process since we have uh, gone through all the different uh, stages that this process requires and my mission is to encourage everyone who goes through the due diligence of running clinical trials to get involved. There are many different reasons why you can get involved. Perhaps the most important and the most altruistic of all is the benefit of your patients that will be able to uh, be on on treatment, perhaps novel or different uh, modalities of administration that can certainly suit their needs and and help them in the in the long run. So this process is not easy as everyone can know uh, or can understand probably. So uh, my suggestion is to um, uh, create a plan of action. Uh, plan of action that we can help you um, address, uh, given our experience in this in this area. We can uh, perhaps uh, log to our website, which is irisrheumatology I-R-I-S, dot Rheumatology, I-R-I-S, uh, We can um, contact you um, back if you have interest on that. But the uh, essentially what we'd like to, to discuss with you is the structure uh, process that that would we'll take to incorporate clinical trials in any kind of size of uh, of, of uh, practice. So um, starting small, creating uh, contacts and connections with people in industry, perhaps your even your representatives or your um, um, uh, uh, scientific liaisons can be a good conduit for that. And the uh, subsequent steps are organizational that require um, certainly some sort of investment in time, investment in education. You can turn your current staff into a well well-oiled uh, research machine. If, if you want to provide it, that you provide the, uh, the necessary education. Another important point that I, I want to cover is the, uh, I spoke about the altruistic aspect of the, of the clinical trials, which indeed they are. And uh, one of the most um, uh, important contributions that we can do, having patients who are the real, representatives of the disease states that we treat is including all sorts and types of diversities in the in the trials. Uh, racial integration, gender in- integration, different social statuses. Uh, essentially, we can uh, help populate studies that are far more representative of the reality of the diseases that we see rather than this niche carved out uh, studies only. So this would be perhaps the most important of all the recommendations that you can do in in order to maintain the sanctity and the purity of the science of clinical trials. So with that, I would like to leave you today. Again, we can become a resource for for anyone who is interested in doing clinical trials and following a model that we have. And I thank you for your attention. And again, I hope to see more attendance during the ACR meeting next year. And thank you again, Romana, for the opportunity to be here. Thank you.